going to get it's going to get pretty sobering pretty quick. But um, uh, Christianity has a messaging problem. Over the over the past six or seven years, we've seen many Christians rally around a person, but not necessarily the person of Jesus Christ. Many Christians have gotten passionate about a message, but it's not necessarily the message of the good news about Jesus. Further, it hasn't necessarily been about the biblical values that flow from this wonderful good news message, right? Justice for all, life for all, serving all, but it's been a little bit more about justice for me, life for me, that which serves me. I felt this in my own life. I felt it with people I love, you know, the historical attraction to Jesus and his followers has been this this good news message that's overflowed into justice, hard won for others, right? Protecting life for others, sometimes at the expense of the Christians who advocated for it. It cost them their lives. I'm reminded of uh, a Roman emperor, Julian, who actually wrote to one of his friends that it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, Christians, support both their own poor and ours. Whew, that's, a, that's a, quite a claim from a, a national leader to say that, right? Now, I'm sad to say that, that Christians are in large part viewed as just wanting to win, just wanting to win. Uh, former pastor Tim Keller, I think, said it well, when, when, the whole chur- when the church as a whole is no longer seen as speaking to questions that transcend personal ideologies, then the world sees evidence that people like Nietzsche and Freud and Marx were right, that religion is really just a cover for people wanting to get their own way in the world, wanting to get their way. This is why a vast majority of young Americans, friends, folks in their 20s and 30s, have a very high view of Jesus still, very high view of Jesus. But guess what? They have a very low view of organized religion. There's, uh, that used to not be the case but it is now, and that's just the reality. And I think Christianity has a messaging problem because the church has a unity problem, has a unity problem. Christians, many Christians anyway, unify around lesser matters than the person and good news of Jesus. You can, look at this. Extensive survey work has been done to show that one of the major reasons that Christians did not return to their respective churches after the initial surge of the pandemic wasn't so much fear, or laws, or even laziness, but tribalism. Going to our own tribes, finding or cementing community around, uh, united around issues, around persons not named Jesus. In fact, a few months ago, I was reading this, this is crazy, I think, 40% of those who call themselves evangelicals attend church once per year or less. Say that again. 40% of people call themselves evangelicals, attend church once per year or or less. A term that literally means good news people has been co-opted as a label around which to unify over lesser matters than the person and work of Jesus. Because those people aren't even going to church. But that's how they identify. Not too long ago, I heard from a dear friend in the Cayman Islands uh, who's long since moved back to America, to D.C., a well-regarded, theologically conservative black pastor who said over the, about the last few years, my entire relational landscape has been rearranged. I've had 20-year friendships completely just blown to the wind. 
I've grieved over this, he said. Now, that's pretty sobering, right? Some positive news. I don't know anyone here who elevates, in this church, who elevates their ideology or lesser matters above Jesus in relationships. And I can say that genuinely. I love that about you guys. And, and, I, and I, yeah, I just want to praise that in you. Now, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes some of y'all come close. <laughs> and when I hear coded language about why these are my kind of people, it worries me as your pastor when we start talking like that or when I start talking like that. Right? But it's never risen to the level of, of unifying around lesser matters in the person and work of Jesus. And I hope and I pray and I'm going to continue to exhort that we stay that way because unity, it's gained slowly, but it's lost quickly. Right? And we know this from experience, from something someone says, something they do, something they we just lose it. All trust goes away. And while every word in the Bible is true, not every word in the Bible is written in all caps. You know what I'm saying? You guys, you gotten emails from people, right? Or seen social media posts where people write in all caps and you ask the question, why are you shouting, right? And sometimes we treat the Bible that way. Like everything is all caps all the time. And as we'll see this morning, Paul lowers the temperature in the room using a word that I don't hear Christians use often enough. And that is the word opinion. Yes, the apostle Paul uses the word opinion in the Bible. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, verse 1. And there's Bibles available to you underneath your seats if you don't have one. If you don't have a Bible at all, we would love for you to take home a Bible from us. Let it be our gift to you. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 in the New Testament, kind of towards the end of the Bible. Romans 14, verse 1. We are coming down the home stretch of our series, Big Words for Living. This early Jesus follower named Paul uses clarifying words that help us uh, figure out how to live in response to the freedom and liberty he's given us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus and through what he's done for us and trusting in him, God has flung open the prison, the prison cell of our life and he's given us freedom in him. Now, how do we, we kind of live out that freedom in the real world? And last week, you may remember our clarifying word was love. And we'll see in today's passage that Paul gets sort of further into the weeds about love, including welcoming others who express different opinions on lesser cultural and religious matters than Jesus. So let's read together Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another. Another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one, uh, on one another any longer. Sorry, we'll stop there. So, let, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is God's word. So let me give you some context here. There's a debate on the nature of this division in the Roman church between those uh, Paul calls the strong and those Paul calls the weak, right? Quote, unquote. You heard those terms, right? You following with me so far? I've adopted, without getting into the sort of details of all the different debates, I've adopted the view that most of the strong, most of the strong are Roman citizens who identified positively with, with Rome and the Roman culture and have, have adopted the full measure of God's uh, liberating grace in Jesus Christ. They have said yes to grace. We love this. And we also kind of, we're, we're cool with the culture. Whereas most of, quote unquote, the weak are likely non Roman citizens with lower status, who thus probably gravitated a little bit more towards that, that extra measure of devotion, making them feel more secure, like a Jewish diet, uh, observing certain Jewish days and Jewish, um, Jewish feasts, which helped them feel more secure. Makes sense? So th this jives historically from what we know about Rome, where citizenry versus being a non-citizen was a bigger deal than in other outlying provinces where Paul also wrote, but here he's writing to Rome. It also jives sociologically. I was talking to a missionary friend of mine in Honduras. He's been there for, for years, and he's married, married to a Honduran. He says the poor among whom he ministers are far more dedicated in, in matters of church life, but he says they're also usually more prone to legalism, even superstition in his context. Whereas the wealthy among whom he ministers feel far more comfortable with a message of grace and of liberty and of freedom, Partly says because they want to enjoy, be free to enjoy their wealth, right? Uh, they're, they're in the strong position, if you will. And that second part is backed up by what we read in verse 2, right? Where it says, one person believes he may eat anything, right? That's the strong person. I have lots of liberty. I can do what I want, right? So we have these two groups that have coalesced around, uh, around lesser matters than Jesus into these two cliques, right? And out of the gate... Paul offers two pastoral responses to this division. The first one is challenging. The second one is radical. All right, so first he challenges them, don't quarrel over opinions. And that's not an unreasonable command, right? Don't, don't quarrel over things you have an opinion about. Just, just sort of avoid bringing it up. That sounds reasonable, right? I think we could all do that. But then he proposes something radical. He says, don't just avoid the topic or the person. Welcome him. Welcome her. Now, one of the, the premier scholars in Romans, a man named Douglas Moo, uh, notes that the word welcome is a very strong word. To welcome someone is to receive them into your life, into your home, and into your relational circle. Let me say that again. To welcome someone is to receive them into your life, your home, your circle of friendship. And the verb, welcome, controls this entire passage. 
It is the exclamation point. It is an imperative. It's a command for the person who believes their opinion is the stronger opinion to welcome the person who has the lesser opinion, the weaker opinion, into your life, into your home, into your circle of friendship. That's pretty hard to do for a lot of us, right? And he gives us the why behind it. He gives us the why in verse 3. Why do this? For God has welcomed him. God has said, you know what? I'm crossing enemy lines, and I'm bringing this person into my family. I'm welcoming them to all of who I am, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, into this fellowship. God has welcomed him. You welcome them. And that's our message in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. In an otherwise somewhat obscure, confusing passage, I get it. Unless they speak anti-Christ, welcome the Christ in every Christian. Unless they speak anti-Christ, welcome the Christ in every Christian. Welcome the person, welcome the authenticity of their relationship with Jesus. Welcome the Christ's influence over their life. Acknowledge it, welcome it. Now, how do we practically do this? How do we actually do this? This is what Paul breaks down for us. How do I welcome when we don't click, this person and I don't click on non-Jesus stuff, right? Stuff that's lesser than Jesus. How do I welcome that person into my life, right? And I'm not just talking about things like sports or not sports. I'm talking about things that really tend to like really divide us. And Paul says a lot of heart work is needed. A lot of work beneath the surface is what's needed for us to genuinely extend a welcome, okay? So, so there's four sort of pieces of heart work that need to be done, stages of heart work that need to be done according to Paul. And the first is this, to remind yourself of who you are. To remind yourself of who you are in order to remember who they are. Remind yourself of who you are in order to remember who they are. In verse 4, Paul literally asks the question, who are you? And you, he goes on to essentially say, you are a servant of the same Lord, the same Christ as that other person. So, so Christ is just the proper title of your Lord, right? And the only thing is Lord, Master, proper title for which would be Christ if you're a Christian. Don't pass judgment because they have a Lord and you have a Lord. And guess what? It's not you. <laughs> In neither case is it you. In both cases, it is Christ Jesus. You may worry about the other person's opinion about a cultural or political issue that is a slippery slope, that by following that view, that person might backslide off a cliff and off of following Jesus forever. And I get that. In those moments, remember that the same Lord who establishes you is able to make the other person stand. Okay? Paul directly says that here. If you feel yourself fretful that your reputation as a Christian or that of Christians as a whole is sort of in jeopardy, at stake because of their opinion, Christ himself is more concerned if ever his reputation is at stake. If you're concerned, believe me, Jesus is concerned. Leave it to him. <laughs> so first, remind yourself of who you are, right? I'm a servant of the same Lord, the same Christ, we both have a different, we all have the same Lord, and it's not me. Number two, acknowledge your position might be both very personal, but not essential. Say that again. Acknowledge your position might be both very personal, but not essential. Look with me again at verse five. One person esteems one day more than another. 
another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The brilliance of this statement is Paul leaves room for both passion on the one hand, but difference on the other. Personal passion, right? Fully convinced, but difference. Each one, right? I mean, that, that implies there's a difference between them. And if you can fully endorse this tension, you'll release the person, release the other from your judgment on non-essentials. You release them. And you'll begin to speak accordingly. They'll begin to speak words of, of humility and grace, and they'll, they'll sense that you're not judging them. We just sang just a minute ago, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace, right? Well, Christians, we as Christians need to exercise far more care as to which words grow strange, strangely dim and which words get our all caps, our highest passion, right? And some need to grow strangely dim. On the screen, you're going to see three concentric circles, right? Circle in the middle, circle that goes beyond that, and another circle that goes beyond that. Three concentric circles. And in the core, the middle circle, you'll see the word convictions. And this is very important for us this morning, and it involves drawing. So have a lot of fun there on your bullets, and you can draw stuff. It'll be great. Um, at the middle, we see core. These are our convictions. And I'll define them there. These are truths clearly stated, repeated, and have no counterpoint in the Bible. In other words, these are the all caps things. <laughs> for example, our salvation, knowing God forever and being saved from death and sin, is by grace through faith in Jesus alone, right? These are things that are unequivocal. These are essentials. These are convictions we have, right? That the Bible is the final authority to our lives. These, right, that there, there's a Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These are things that are repeated multiple times, and there's not really contradictions or counterpoints to them in the Bible. Yes, all caps. <laughs> and next you're gonna see the next ring out is the middle, the middle ring is persuasions. These are truths that are mostly clear, repeated, but they have a counterpoint in the Bible. Like there's one, the Bible says one thing here, says something that seems to say something different over here. Okay, these are persuasions. And then you're going to see in the outer ring, opinions. Opinions are the things we should hold most loosely to. These are principles which we choose to connect to truth, but they're neither clear, they're not repeated. They're just things we think based loosely on Scripture. Does that make sense? So here's where I want to pause and get really practical. We're going to go underwater for a little bit, and we're not going to come up to the surface for a while. But the point of doing this is so we can get really practical. Whenever I've heard sermons on this Scripture or ones like it, here are the examples I've heard, practical example. Whether or not we should consume alcohol, whether it's okay to have wine, whatever, whether it's okay to watch R-rated movies or not. Uh, whether it's okay to believe in a literal seven-day creation or whether it's not okay for that. Let's be real. Those are yesterday's conversations. These are not today's conversations. These are not the conversations most Christians are having today. I'm going to bring up this morning for us four actual conversations people have initiated with me over the past year. Okay? I am not... I want to be really clear about this. I am not trying to give you my opinion, my, my stance on any of them. They just happen to be questions that have been brought up to me and about which we should be asking. Is this, is this a conviction? Is this a persuasion? Or is this just an opinion? Are you ready for this? Here are the four. Number one, 
brought up to me, is it okay to consume marijuana? This was brought up to me, and I'll admit to you guys, I immediately winced. As a child of the 1980s, it's my instinct to nod with Nancy and just say no, all right? Some of you guys get that joke. Nod with Nancy, Nancy Reagan, no one, okay. Um, however, as some of you might have heard or smelled, marijuana is legal in California. So is it okay to pop a gummy, as the kids say today? Well, it's been illegal for so long Science is unclear on the, on the matter, except for those with developing brains, where it is pretty clear, and you probably shouldn't touch that stuff to your mid-20s. But the Bible itself is silent on it, right? It doesn't mention it. The closest equivalent is alcohol. The New Testament is clear for those who follow Jesus. Do not get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. So there's a matter of intoxication you got to keep in mind. The Bible is totally silent, though, on marijuana, so it would seem to fall in the category of opinions, though you are absolutely free to have one. And Paul endorses that, right? Number two, here's another one that's brought up to me. When does human life begin? Mm. Okay, I'm, so the question isn't, is, is human life valuable? It absolutely is. It is precious, it is valuable, it is worthy of protection. The question I'm asking is, when does human life begin? That's been asked to me. In one case, someone asked me this because they were trying to advise someone who was sexually active. In another case, an old friend of mine who had degenerative hip and knee issues was considering uh, getting stem cell therapy. And whether you know it or not, stem cells are extracted by mean, when they're extracted, they destroy a human embryo or an embryo. There are differing views about when life begins among Christians, whether you want to acknowledge this or not, there are. Uh, based on Genesis 2-7, man becoming a living creature at first breath, a few people say, hey, life begins at first breath. First breath someone takes. Opponents of that would say, yeah, but that's considering Adam when he didn't actually go through a womb, which is the normal process of birth. More people would say, hey, uh, a heartbeat is the beginning of human life. That sort of makes sense when you're able to sustain life. Some people would say implantation is the beginning of life. Some people say, uh, take the position that um, beginning of life is at conception. And they would point to, for example, a Psalm 139 where the psalmist David says, for you formed my inmost parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. But people on the other side would say, yeah, but David also said about personhood in that same psalm, all the days ordained for me were written in, in your book of life before any one of them came to be. God sees a potential person then 100, 1,000 years before they even get in the womb. So what about that? And some Christians believe it's problematic to base an entire view on a poetic part of the Bible where David also describes being at the bottom of an ocean to convey how God would, would intimately know him more. Whatever it is, your view would probably fall under the category of either persuasion or more likely an opinion. When does human life begin? Here's a third one. Whew, now we're getting real serious here. Uh, should women preach and lead at the highest levels of a church? Now, there are a couple elephants in the room here on this one. Number one, I'm male. <laughs> Didn't know that. <laughs> I am. And, and, and while I'm, I'm relatively new to PCC, my understanding is the, the elders in this church have been exclusively male since its inception. Now, the New Testament has a lot to say on this issue. I'll give you the two headlines, the two big headlines. First Timothy 2, 11, uh, 
12 and 13. I do not permit, this is Paul speaking, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. On the other side, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So then there, some would say, well, there's no longer a distinction positionally. Your view may be entirely or mostly formed by culture, secular culture, or the church culture you grew up in, potentially. More likely, it's a persuasion. The Bible actually talks about it quite a bit, but there's points and counterpoints on both sides, see? Fourth one, who's to blame, institutional or individual? For societal ills we have today, who's more to blame, the institution or the individual? This is a huge question people bring up, Christians especially, right? Gun, the gun lobby, for, for, the, for the extraordinary amount of deaths we have by way of guns in our country. Is this a gun lobby issue, right? The, the institution, or is, it, or is it the individuals who shoot them? Schools, government, uh, are they to blame? Are, are individual administrations and teachers who, who teach things that maybe shouldn't be taught in schools? Who's more to blame? The police force as a whole? Or, or institutions and bad cops for, for a misuse of force? In the case of Catholic or, or Southern Baptist abuse, is the institution to blame or is it individual leaders that are to blame? These are questions people are asking. And the Bible says, on the one hand, we have individual responsibility. It says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The prophets, though, frequently indict institutions in places like Ezekiel 34, where they blame the institution of the priesthood. The prophet Daniel prays and takes responsibility for the corporate sin of a nation, even though he himself did nothing wrong. Who's more to blame, the institution, the individual? Well-meaning Christians could be persuaded one way or another. Does this make sense? I'm just being, want to be real with you guys about these issues, and you may be mad as heck right now from wherever you're sitting by something I said, that I said poorly, that I didn't say, that I left off, that I failed to mention. Please show me lots of grace. I'm just reporting to you the news given to me personally. The point isn't so much, what's your position on these things? Notice I did not give mine. And by the way, I won't for at least a week if I'm asked after the service, all right? And I'm mean, serious about that because I don't want to distract from the point, distract from the point which is expressing your view with humility. You know, I'm persuaded towards this view, and here's why. But there are well-meaning Christians who are persuaded to another view. That's, this is my opinion, but you know what? It's an opinion, and I may be wrong. Can you imagine what a difference that would make if Christians across the world would speak that way? Because you might be thinking to yourself, Ryan, you're talking about semantics and language. You're being so specific. Does that make a difference? It absolutely does. And I am praying for a speech revolution, that we be, be, use, exercise more care with our words if we said things like, you know, I'm persuaded to this, but there are so many other Christians who think differently. And this is just an opinion I could be wrong. Imagine how the world would view us and how we would view each other. After all, Paul doesn't say to refrain from mentioning your opinion, but to refrain from quarreling over it. And we've done far too much of that, friends, haven't we? All right, we're coming back up to the surface, all right? 
Two more points, two more pieces of heart work Paul says to do to help us welcome people who express something different than we might express that's lesser than Jesus. The third one is welcome your Lord into every part of your life. Look at me at verses six through eight. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. We live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. No matter we are, the Lord's eating. Uh, everything to which you give thanks or everything from which you refrain, an opinion that I may have held for the last 30 years, welcome the Lord into every part of your life. Every part of your life. And let him speak to every part of your life, right? Even things you may have held on to for, for decades or the way you grew up, let God speak into those areas. And if you do, if you do that, imagine how sad or just disappointed or frustrated you would be to be misunderstood by doing anything less by a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Welcoming the Lord in your, every part of your life makes it much easier to trust that your family members are doing likewise. Your attitude starts to change. I'm doing this Wait a minute, others are probably doing this too. One final piece of heart work to help us genuinely extend a welcome to other people. Welcome the Lord into every part of their life. Welcome the Lord into every part of their life. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we get so frustrated with, with a family member who thinks differently about, about something that matters to us. Pray for them. Pray that person will welcome God into every part of their life. Not only will this soften your heart towards those people, you'll be acknowledging that God is a better judge than you. As verse 12 says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we remain a church that welcomes the Christ in every Christian. That when people come through these walls, when we go out into the community, either way, that people would sense our welcome, that we welcome Christ, unless the person is anti-Christ, that we would welcome the Christ in each person, to believe that the, the relationship is genuine, that, that you're exercising influence over our lives, that you're at work in there, even as we express opinions or persuasions that are different than ours. May the things of this earth grow strangely dim, Jesus, in light of your glory and grace. And may people see that in our church and the churches throughout Sonoma County and all of California and all of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.